Welcome to the Spooky Electric Podcast by me, Trent Venegas. You need another podcast like you need another hole in your head. So here we go. For this episode of Spooky Electric, I have decided to talk about the music and career and my favorite memories and stories of Susie and the Banshees. Now, Susie and the Banshees is one of my all-time favorites. One of the bands that I can listen to over and over and over again over different periods of time. Like, I can go on these kicks where I'm, like, super into an artist. And all I listen to is that artist's catalog for days and weeks on end. And Susie and the Banshees is definitely one of my favorite artists to do that with. Now... Susie's been around for more than... Susie and the Banshees was founded more than 40 years ago. And I remember uh, when the band celebrated their 40th anniversary a few years ago, uh, it was crazy to think that um, one of my favorite bands was so had been around for so long. Uh, but for me, not as long as for um, most of the fans who have been there from the beginning. Now, Susie and the Banshees was founded in the late 70s, and I didn't actually become a real fan until the early 90s. So I missed the whole entire 80s run of the band when they were at their peak, when they were on MTV and on the radio, and they had like all these singles just for years and years and years. I missed all of that as it happened live because as a pop kid, my focus was more on the, you know, Prince, Madonna um, side of of music. So I was aware of Susie and the Banshees back in the day. My earliest memory of the band is probably from around 1984 when uh, I saw them on MTV and it was like, wow, like, what is this? And I remember really liking the song. And, um, and, you know, so I, I, I liked them and I knew of them, but I wasn't really a fan fan until much later. So with a band that is this, uh, with a legacy that's this long and with a career that's so storied, there's a lot to talk about. And because I, you know, don't have stories from like the very early days, I just, uh, I want to talk about um, the history of the band that I've learned over the years that I obsessively have read up on um, here and there over the years um, to catch those of you up who who may be fans of Susie and the Banshees, but you might not know all of the details of like how they came to be and like their first show and all of that. Um, or if you are a fan of Susie and the Banshees, there are things you still might not know. Like I, as a fan for coming on 30 years now, about 30 years I've been a fan, which is crazy by the way, like to talk about like, oh, they've been around for 40 years and I've only been a fan for 30. Like that's kind of crazy. Um, but even as a longtime fan, I learned new stuff like this week alone doing research uh, for this podcast episode. So there's a lot of information. And of course, if you're not a fan of Susan the Banshees and you know of them, but you don't really know of them, Hopefully, this episode will give you some context of how amazing, legendary, iconic this band is. And even though the band has broken up and they no longer make new music, there is 40 years of music out there for all of us to go back, listen to, and enjoy for the rest of our lives. So... Okay, let's do a little history here about Susie and the Banshees. Uh, The band was formed in 1976 by Susie Sue, the lead singer, who 
her real name, her birth name, is Susan Janet Ballion. Uh, so Susie Sue and bassist Stephen Severin met uh, in 1976. Uh, well, they met... A, okay, so the band was formed in 76, but they were friends before. So they probably met, you know, in you know, the years before um, at a Roxy Music concert. Oh, in 1975. So Susie and Stephen Severin met in 1975 at a concert, Roxy Music. And I have found that some of the best people I know in life, I met at concerts. When you meet someone at a concert, that's like your kindred person. Like if you bond over music, you're probably going to be friends for, if not forever, for a very long time. So Susan met Stevie, sorry, Susan met Steve and Susan decided to go by Susie, but back then she spelled it S-U-Z-I-E. And if if you know the band now, um, she eventually changed her name to Susie, S-I-O-U-X-S-I-E, which I always loved. Although when I was little, I thought, you know, it was Suxi, which I think a lot of dumb kids um, thought when they first saw Susie and the Banshees spelled out, Suxi and the Banshees. Um, but yeah, so she originally spelled it S-U-Z-I-E and Steven Severin went by Steve Spunker. So these guys were like punks back in the day. So the Sex Pistols, you know, were already getting very popular, uh, in the UK and Susie and Severin and their friends used to follow the Sex Pistols around to all their shows. Um, and they became known as the Bromley Contingent because that's where they came from. So they were like this quote-unquote gang of friends, fans, who used to hang out with the Sex Pistols um, like all the time. And British journalist Carolyn Kuhn coined the term Bromley Contingent to describe the group of eccentric teenagers devoted to the Sex Pistols. Um, When I did uh, the radio show First Person with my friend Josh Madden on Adobe Radio, we talked a little bit about Susie and the Banshees in one of our episodes. And um, at the time when Josh and I were talking about Susie and the Bromley contingent, we talked about the fact of uh, how they were very, how they reminded me of like what early 2000s uh, club kids in New York City, uh, the misshapes uh, called themselves. So the misshapes uh, is a trio of DJs who in the early 2000s uh, cultivated a really cool club scene in New York City. Um, and all these really cool kids would like always go to misshapes dance parties and they would always like hang out together, um, going to different concerts and different parties. And if the party was cool, you know, this group of 20, you know, kids would show up and the party would be super poppin'. And if the party sucked and one person or two people wanted to bounce, like the whole group would go. So like the misshapes kids in New York in the early 2000s, the Bromley contingent was that kind of group of friends and fans in the late 70s who were following around the Sex Pistols and going to all these punk shows. Uh, so in 1976, uh, the Sex Pistols manager, Malcolm McLaren, organized uh, a punk festival at the 100 Club uh, on September 20th, 1976. And at the time... There are like 20 bands or 10 bands. Like there were a lot of bands who were playing um, at this punk festival. And a lot of these bands were like brand new or they were just trying to figure out what they wanted to be. Like the punk scene in the late 70s was super DIY, was super noisy, raucous, and not very refined. And that was by design. So... So uh, Malcolm McLaren, you know, was putting together this festival and one of the bands dropped out or decided they didn't want to play. And Susie and Severin decided that they were going to put together a band at the very last minute 
and uh, were going to fill that spot. They had never played a live show before. They weren't a band. They had never written music. They couldn't play instruments, although I do think that Severin had um, some musical skill. He uh, is the bassist and became the bassist and was... Susie and Severin are the only two members of Susie and the Banshees who go back to the very, very beginning. Um, So they put together this group at the very last second, and they called themselves Susie and the Banshees, and Susie still spelt her name S-U-Z-I-E, and they enlisted guitarist Marco Peroni, who would later go on to play guitar for Adam and the Ants, and... um, Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious decided to play drums for Susie and the Banshees. So the very first incarnation and the very first performance uh, by Susie and the Banshees was made up of Susie Sue, Steve Spunker, Steve Severin, uh, Marco Peroni, and Sid Vicious. Um, so they played a 20 to 24 minute uh, set list that was um, centered around uh, an improvisation of the Lord's Prayer, and the um, the set list it was it was like the Lord's Prayer, but it included like elements of other songs, um, like uh, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles, um, Smoke on the Water, I think is in there. Um, I Get No Satisfaction, like little bits of that song are in there. Um, So they were just going up there making noise. They just wanted to go up there and make noise. They just wanted to go up there and quote unquote play a show as quote unquote a band. And they honestly did a pretty damn good job. (laughs) Like this medley included, you know, knocking on heaven's door, twist and shout. Like they kind of just threw everything in that they either liked or just knew how to play. Um, to try and fill out this set list for this show. Um, Billy Idol originally, uh, Billy Idol was in the punk band Generation X before he went solo. He was originally going to play guitar in that first show, but he dropped out and then Marco took his place. Um, And I watched an interview with Susie where she talks about this first show. And she mentioned that she insisted on singing with three microphones like taped together. So she had the, um, you know, who, the, 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 the road, whoever was helping them put together the, the show, she had them take three microphones and, you know, electrical tape them together so she could sing into three microphones at the same time so that she could be quote, as loud as possible. Um, which I'm guessing caused all kinds of feedback and made all this kind of noise, which was probably unintentional, but definitely gave, um, the performance, the punk (laughs) sound that they were probably going for. Um, The band wasn't meant to last after that one gig. Um, They really were just like, let's just do this for fun. And that was going to be it. But they turned, it ended up being so good that they were asked to play again and again and again. And Susie and the Banshees was born. Um, Over the years, uh, the band famously added and lost members, mostly guitarists. Um, yeah, I'm going to go through a list of all the guitarists that they went through, but for sure, um, Susie and Severin are the heart and soul of Susie and the Banshees, and everyone who came after um, were kind of just players in the band. Um, except for uh, Budgie, the drummer, who would join Susie and the Banshees in, I believe, 1979, and then stay with them until the very end. Uh, but we will get to that in a minute. Um, uh, well, let's talk about that now. So Pete Clark is Budgie's real name, and he joined around 1979 and became the third permanent member of the band, uh, and he eventually became Susie's husband. They coupled up in 1981 uh, they started their own side project called The Creatures. And The Creatures is just Susie and Budgie, and they have their own story. So The Creatures put out records from 1981 all the way to the late 90s. The Creatures, so Susie and Banshees broke up, and then The Creatures stayed together. But then Susie and Budgie ended up getting a divorce, 
and and all of that. So that whole story goes with the creatures story, which might be its own episode at some point. But for our purposes here, it's uh it's important to mention that Budgie came on board in 1979 and became the third um full-time member of the band. From that point on, there were, you know, a ton of other guitarists. Um, but as far as drummers, Su- Susie and the Banshee started out with Sid Vicious. And then um, they had a drummer called, his name was Kenny Morris. And then when he quit the band, Budgie from the Slits joined Susie and the Banshees and then stayed uh, a member of the band from that point forward. Um... I mentioned that the first performance that Susie and the Manchies did at the uh, 100 Club Punk Festival was centered around the Lord's Prayer. So the Lord's Prayer from the Bible, you know, Our Father Who Art in Heaven, blah, blah, blah. Um, they took that prayer, that recitation, and they made it their own. And the song was uh, eventually recorded for their second album, Join Hands. And... Um, it's it's such a great song. Like I slept on this song early on because anything that was like Bible related, I was like, eh, like I was like, that's not super interesting to me. But I really didn't listen to it and I really didn't pay attention to the lyrics. And the lyrics are, you know, there's the part of the lyrics are, uh, if you're good, if you're good, no, you'll never get to heaven. Not even if you're good. There's never, ever been a heaven. There's never, ever been a heaven on earth as it is in heaven on earth as it is in heaven that's what it says. No heaven is earth. Earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. And it just kind of goes on for like, I think, 12 minutes, the um, the recorded version on the album. It's, it's long, um, but not as long as the version that they did when they played their first show. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's great. So that song is definitely a song that you need to hear to get a little bit of... Um, context for how Susie and the Banshees started out um, in the beginning. So the band was very, um, so they were a punk band. When people who know of or who know Susie and the Banshees, they think of goth. Like Susie and the Banshees are long, have long been held as uh, a very important goth band. That's a label that Susie always hated Severin always hated that they were, uh, that the press tried to pigeonhole them into one thing. But for me, it wasn't so much that, well, okay, so the press does pigeonhole artists because it's easier to talk about them that way. But I like the fact that they are heralded as goth innovators or inventors along with Bauhaus and Specimen and all these other amazing goth bands because um, goth music dark wave in general is so dear to me and to think about the and, it, and it's dear to me because the music of Susie and the Banshees I because I love it so much and I associate you know goth and dark wave with um, Susie so for me I love the fact that they are goth innovators but the band started out as a punk band they were screaming and a lot of their early Peel sessions, the live recordings that they did for John Peel in the UK for, I think, BBC Radio, um, are really um, sparse, pared down, noisy, truncated, punky songs, which I love. Like, it's kind like, I love this band so much. So, like, they started out as punk, um, so punk that Susie took her punkness very, very seriously. Um, in the early days, she would wear clothing that was super in your face, as you know, intended to be as um, uh, not normal, as in your face, as offensive as possible, because that's like what the punk aesthetic was. Like the punk aesthetic was like, do your own thing and be your own person. But it was also meant to be shocking with like, you know, platform or steel toe boots, um, the suspenders and the tall mohawks and women with shaved heads. All of that was very um, confrontational to the norms of society. And that was by design. Um, At one point, 
Susie wore a swastika armband because she was just trying to piss people off. She would also wear, um, she would also go topless. Sometimes she'd put electrical tape on her nipples. Sometimes she wouldn't. She would just have her like breasts out because she was trying to be as offensive as possible. And I hate these pictures of, of her at the time. Well, not all of them, but I do hate the image of her wearing, there's this famous photo of her with the swastika armband. And it's just ugh, like, I fucking hate that so much. But again, she was trying to be like in your face. She was not anti-Semitic. She was not anti-Jew. None of that. She was just trying to find the most offensive um, symbol possible so that she could be like, fuck you to everyone who looked at her. Um, she was accused of being anti-Semitic and she hated that, that that kind of started to take hold. So to make up for it, she never did that again. You know, if she did it more than a few times, I'd be very surprised. Um, uh, she wrote the song uh, Metal Postcard Mitigeisen in memory of the anti-Nazi artist John Hartfeld. Um, and her single Israel, which is one of my favorite songs, was also written um, as a means to try and offset, you know, how people had perceived her when she wore that armband and to try and probably to make people like forget and and I think to say like that she was sorry. So as much as I hate that image of her, it does speak to the punk in your face element that are the that is where the band um came from. Um another really cool thing um about the band in general and the band early on was that Robert Smith of The Cure joined Susie and the Banshees twice. So Robert Smith had started his own band, The Cure. And if you ever see pictures of Robert Smith from the very early Cure days, he did not look so much like he, like you think he, like you know how he looked. So when Robert Smith of The, when, of the Cure became popular, you think of him with like big, you know, teased out hair and like red sloppy lipstick and like pale white skin. Like that whole look came from his time of being a Banshee in Susie and the Banshees. Like he did not look like that before he joined Susie and the Banshees. Like I think his friendship with Susie helped him with his iconic look. Um, so Robert Smith joined uh, the Banshees uh, for a tour in 1979 after the Banshees guitarist uh, John McKay and drummer Kenny Morris quit um, at a record store signing. And the story, Susie tells it better. There's, you know, if you Google, like, interviews with Susie, you, you can hear her tell the story. And essentially, uh, John and Kenny, I, they were tired or something. They were at a record signing, and the band got into an argument, and those two guys, like, left. Like, they were just like, fuck this, we're leaving, and they left. You know, and Susie, Severin were totally pissed off, but they were like, whatever. And then they did not show up for a sound check later that night and they skipped the show and Susie was like, fuck them. She talks about the fact that had she had the chance, she probably would have murdered them because she was so angry at them for like quitting like that. Um, so those guys quit and the Banshees were on like tour, like they were on a tour and they needed to like find a guitarist and a drummer immediately and not only find them, but they had to like teach them all of their songs up to that point. So um, Robert Smith of The Cure, friends of Susie and Severin and the band, um, decided to, uh, I, I think, if memory serves, and I'm not 100% sure on this, but I believe that The Cure was actually on tour with them when this happened, because The Cure was smaller than Susie and the Banshees. And Robert Smith decided to step in and play guitar for the band. And Budgie, who had left the slits by this point, uh, joined the band as the drummer. So Susie and the Banshees at this point was Susie, Severin, Robert Smith, and Budgie. Uh, they finished out the tour, and then at the end of the tour, Robert Smith went back to The Cure to, like, you know, be in The Cure, and um, ended up rejoining the band in 1982, and when another, when another guitarist left, and then stayed until 1984. And when he returned to the band... His 
caveat was he would come back come back to the band and join but he wanted to record with them because the first so the first time when he joined he was just filling in on the tour but for uh the second time of him joining the band he's like all right i'm gonna be come back to the band but i want to record an album he was in a cure at the same time um and recorded the live album nocturne and recorded the album hyena as an official member of Susie and the Banshees, which, awesome. Like, The Cure, definitely, definitely one of the greatest bands. Definitely, definitely one of the iconic goth bands. Um, But when you think about the fact that Robert Smith um, was also part of Susie and the Banshees for a few years and appears on uh, a couple of their albums, that speaks in my mind, very highly of how highly regarded Susie and the Banshees uh, is as a band, that even Robert Smith, who had his own successful band at the time, was such a big fan that he wanted to be in the Banshees as well as do his own thing at the same time, which is crazy to me, and I love it. Um, so as I mentioned, the band started out as a punk outfit. Their debut album, The Scream, is very punk-sounding, uh, but then they evolved into this, like, you know, post-punk, kind of more rocky, radio-friendly, I don't want to say poppy, but the songs were catchy, which is why I love them so much. Um, and then they became heralded as goth innovators. Their album Juju is regarded, is regarded as one of the greatest goth albums of all time. When people look back at, like, goth, the genre, um, the Susie and the Banshees album Juju is is looked to as one of the greatest goth albums of all time. Their album A Kiss in the Dream House is their psychedelic album. Uh, they put out um, an EP called The Thorn, where they took some songs from The Scream, their debut, and they reworked them with strings. Susie talks about the fact that she hated being uh, put into one genre. She hated that the band was punk. She hated the band was gosh. She hated the band was rock. She wanted the band to be whatever they wanted to be whenever they made music. So that's why their sound kind of changes from album to album. But it kind of all goes together. Like, as a younger music fan, it never occurred to me that the music sounded different. It just all sounded like Susie and the Banshees, and I love it. But if you really listen to the records, you can hear an evolution of the music, of what the the band was into. And all through it all, it's definitely, you know, Susie, Severin, and Budgie. They write their own music. All those lyrics are Susie. I'm sure she had some help along the way, you know, here and there, but like all those lyrics are Susie. All that music is Severin and Budgie and Susie all together. Um, they're just amazing. Um, they put out a covers album called Through the Looking Glass. Uh, the band has always done covers. Their debut album, they covered the Beatles' Helter Skelter. Um, on Hyena, they also covered the Beatles' song, uh, Dear Prudence. Um, and then they, they decided in the late 80s to put out a covers album of all covers, which includes a cover of Strange Fruit, uh, the song Trust in Me, which was used in Jungle Book. And um, the biggest songs uh, from Through the Looking Glass include uh, The Passenger, which is a cover of Iggy and the Stooges, which, in my opinion, is better than the original. And uh, their cover of This Wheel's on Fire, which was the original version was used for the theme song for Absolutely Fabulous, which a lot of people are like, it's funny because I was a Susie fan before I was an Abfab fan. And when I heard the theme song, I was like, oh my God, it's Susie. And I'm like, oh wait, it's not Susie. It's the original version of that song that they, they did. But for me, This Wheel's on Fire is forever a Susie and the Banshee song because that's how I heard it first and that's how I love it. Um, same thing with The Passenger. I love Iggy so much. Iggy Pop is amazing. But uh, Susie and the Banshee's version of The Passenger is by far my absolute favorite and is the only version of the song that I absolutely love, love, love. Um, in 91 when the band released Superstition, that's when I became a fan. So 
As you may recall, as I mentioned in the previous episode about 1991, I was super, I was, this is when my music um, education was starting to really take off. I was really starting to pay attention to music and bands and listening to lyrics and reading, you know, liner notes. And this is also when I started to pay attention to Susie and the Banshees. Um, that album um, was one of their biggest because of the song Kiss Them For Me, which is probably the band's biggest hit. Although their cover of Dear Prudence in 1984 is is also, is like their other big hit. And I'll talk about that in a minute because that's my first memory of the band ever. Um, so Su- Superstition came out in, in, in 91 and that's when I became a fan. And then their follow-up, The Rapture, I was obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with The Rapture. The last album that they put out as a band, produced by John Cale, it came out, um, I believe in 1995, at a time when I was so crazy into music. I was so into going to concerts. I was like, 95 was my year. And I was, there was a point in, in, in that year where I was going through a very emotional time not to get too much into it, but I was realizing that I was having feelings for one of my male friends and like I just ached, loved this guy so much, straight guy, it was never going to happen. And that album helped me with that period of time so much. Um, uh, when I listen to that record, I'm totally taken back to that time and those feelings and the heartache that I felt. And I still feel that heartache a little bit when I listen, but it's also cathartic to kind of let it out. Um, the Rapture is definitely one of my favorite albums. The Vinyl is one of my favorite vinyl to own. Um, it is a translucent glow-in-the-dark record which is so cool. You charge it, you, you take the record and you charge it up by some light and you turn off all the lights and you put it on your turntable and it glows in the dark while it plays. It's so cool. Um, yeah, I love that record. And then after, um, after The Rapture was put out, the band put out uh, a B-Sides collection called Downside Up which is a four CD box set, which has 55 songs. This band has 55 B-sides. B-sides are songs that are not included on albums. So in addition to their 11 albums and 30 singles, they also released 55 B-sides on those singles. And 100% Downside Up is an essential thing that you need to have in your collection as a Susie and the Banshees fan. I believe it's out of print. I believe it's hard to find, but it is on streaming services. Thank the gods. So it's out there. Um, Go find it. Um, As I mentioned, the band released 11 albums and 30 singles over their 40-year career. Uh, Their cover of Dear Prudence was the first song I ever heard. I, I saw it on MTV um, it's, it, the band is, the video is set in Venice and the band is just like walking through the streets of Venice. The videos of the early eighties were very sparse. It wasn't until like Michael Jackson started pumping like millions of dollars into music videos and they look like little mini movies, like thriller. Like it wasn't until that started happening that music videos started looking really like cinematic pieces of storytelling. Before that, uh, music videos were pretty much um, the bands just playing, like, you know, lip singing to their songs and playing, you know, on stage with like flowing cloth and like smoke and lasers and stuff. Or they were just like walking around. Like if you if you think about the video for Madonna's Like a Virgin, she's also in Venice, but she's like, you know, riding a gondola, rolling around, riding in a wedding gown. Like it's they're very minimal um, and in my opinion, charming. But compared to the crazy videos of these days with like millions of dollars and CGI and, you know, AR and 3D, like in the early days, videos are very sparse. So the video for Dear Prudence, um, 
Susie and the band, including Robert Smith, are walking through the streets of Venice. And she, Susie's very striking in this video. She's got like, you know, teased out poofy hair. Her eye makeup is super heavy. Her very iconic Susie eye makeup. Uh, the first time I ever saw that. And then the other thing that struck me at the time, like I was a very young kid, and Susie Sue had hairy armpits. Not like super hairy, but she had, obviously she had hairy armpits. And it was the first time I ever saw that. And it was like, at the time I was like, oh, that's so gross. That's so weird. But I didn't even have hairy armpits at the time. So I thought that like hairy armpits on anyone was gross. Um, and women are supposed to be so delicate and refined. And I just, I, for me, it was like, what? It shocked me. But it stuck with me. And I loved that version. And I'm a little embarrassed to admit it. But, you know, I was a kid at the time. I didn't know. I didn't know it was a cover. I didn't know the Beatles. I'm not a Beatles fan. I'm still not a Beatles fan. Sorry about it. Um, So I always thought for the longest time that Dear Prudence was their song. Obviously, it's a cover of the Beatles. uh, But that's the first time that I ever um, heard them. The first time I ever saw them. Um, And it was their biggest hit until uh, Kiss Them For Me came out in 1991. Um, In 1992, the band was asked by Tim Burton to write a song for the Batman Returns soundtrack. And Susie says that she initially said no because she wanted nothing to do with, like, movie soundtracks and, like, Batman. But when she found out that Catwoman was uh, one of the villains in the film, she changed her mind and said yes. She talks about how Catwoman has always been like her kindred spirit and she's always been a fan of Catwoman. So because of that reason and the dark look and tone of the film, she changed her mind and the band wrote Face to Face, the love theme from Batman Returns with uh, soundtrack composer um, uh, Danny Elfman. Uh, one side note about Susie and Catwoman later, and and I'll probably tell the story better later when I eventually do an episode about the creatures or I might do an episode about concerts in general, but we'll see. But I met Susie Sue, um, on tour, uh, when she was on tour with the creatures in the late nineties, I want to say 99, something like that. Um, and I knew she was. She loved Catwoman. I knew she loved Catwoman. I knew she did the song for Batman Returns. And I brought her a little stuffed... A, a little stuffed uh, figure of Catwoman that I got from, I believe, the Warner Brothers store. And it was uh, Catwoman, but the Catwoman that is featured in the Batman animated series. So the very streamlined, she's wearing like, like a skin-tight catsuit. Like that, the Catwoman that you know from Batman animated adventures... With the Batman animated series, they made a, a a a stuffed figure for her for all of the, the the characters actually, and I bought them all. And my best friend Sarah can can confirm that I used to have all of those stuffed animals in my room when we lived together because I was a grown ass man with toys still, and I still am. But that's just the way it is. Anyways, I brought this toy, this doll, and I gave it to Susie. I gave it to her on stage like I was up front against the front and I handed it to her and she loved it she was just like she was like Catwoman she's like my spirit animal I remember she said that and then she thanked me and uh I I used to wait after concerts after shows to get autographs and and hopefully photos with artists um and for whatever reason I didn't um meet her at that show but I saw the next show, so that was in Detroit, Michigan, and then the next day I drove to Cleveland, Ohio to see them on their next stop because I, my favorite artist, I see them a few times in, in cities nearby. And I told her, I did meet her after the show, and I told her that I was the guy who gave her the Catwoman doll. And she hugged me, and she thanked me for it, and she loved it. She told me that she... um that she was going to attach it to Budgie's drum, uh, his cymbal on his drums, so that she would be with them on the rest of the tour. So 
I, and I have a picture of, of me and Susie and maybe I'll, I'll share that so you can see what we look like after I told her how much I love her and she thanked me for uh, giving her the Catwoman doll. So anyways, that's a long aside that goes along with the fact that Susie and the Banshees wrote uh, the, the love theme for Batman Returns uh, back in 1992. That, and that was like, so that experience was so good for that, for the band that they decided to do, um, they wrote a song that was used on the Showgirls soundtrack. So the song New Skin, uh, which I believe was an outtake from the Rapture album recording session and it wasn't released as a b-side it was released as a song on the showgirls soundtrack and showgirls had the has the the um notoriety of being the first rated x movie to be released in theaters in the you know in regular theaters here in the united states and my guess is that x rating is what uh is what uh convince Susie and the Banshees to give a song to the soundtrack. Um, and then on the Marie Antoinette soundtrack, the film directed by Sophie, Sophia Coppola, who, who uh, all of her films have soundtracks that feature um, new wave and post-punk bands on them. Um, the band's first single ever, Hong Kong Garden, was reworked with strings, with a string intro, and that song is included on the soundtrack to uh, Marie Antoinette. And then one last thing about soundtracks. After the band broke up, once Susie went solo, she released a song called Love Crime, which was used in the series finale of Hannibal, which is, again, another one of my all-time favorite things. It's one of my favorite TV shows uh, about Hannibal Lecter. And based on the books, it's dark, it's fucking creepy, it's a scary show, it's a beautiful show, and I have, and, and loving that show and watching that show from beginning to end, I can see why Susie would want to be associated with it and why she would record the, uh, a song for, for the series finale. Um, Susie and the Banshees was also, uh, one of the bands that was on the first version of Lollapalooza. So when the Lollapalooza Festival, which is stationary now in Chicago, it used to tour the country the first few years. And the very first Lollapalooza featured um, Susie and the Banshees uh, and Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails was another band that was on the uh, first version of of Lollapalooza. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that the band went through a whole lot of guitarists. So um, all of the members of Susie and the Banshees over the years included Susie Sue, Steven Severin, Marco Peroni, Sid Vicious, Kenny Morris, Pete Fenton, John McKay, Budgie, Robert Smith, John McGeeock, John Valentine Carruthers, Martin McCarrick, John Klein, and Knox Chandler. <laughs> so, like, I don't really know the story about Spinal Tap, but isn't isn't there like this funny thing about the fake band Spinal Tap that their their drummer always dies or they always get a new drummer every time they go out or something? Like that real thing happened for Susan the Banshees. They went through guitarists like every few years, and when you're in when you've been around for 40 years, um, apparently, and you change your guitarist like that, you go through a lot of guitarists. So again, through all of these band members who came and went, Susie Sue, Steven Severin, the original two from day one, and then Budgie, the third um, almost original member, had had been in the band to the very, very end. Um... Yeah, so that's like the history of the band and it's funny talking about a band like this because again, I don't have like these personal stories of like, oh, like, you know, my older 
cooler sister introduced me to this band or I saw them like on their first tour. Like those are great stories. And I don't have those stories with Susie and the Banshees, but I am proof that you can become a fan of a band really late into their career and definitely um, get all of the greatness from just listening to and um, taking in the music into your soul. Like this band, I will listen to Susan the Banshees for the rest of my life. Um, whenever I go out to like a goth club or dance, any dance club that plays like dark wave music, I'm always waiting to hear the Susie song. Like I'm not going to leave until I can dance to a Susie song. And I'm, I'm very, very glad that more often than not, that is the case. Um, as, as you know, newer dark wave artists came out, come out, um, newer DJs obviously are going to play like newer music, but the ones that know the real ones, they will always throw in a Susie classic or, um, a Susie deep cut for, for people who know that they are iconic. Um, there's there's just so much to talk about. Like Susie went solo after she broke up with uh after the band broke up. Um and honestly, I really think and this is just my opinion. I really think Susie and the Banshees broke up because Susie and Budgie's marriage ended. Like if they were still together, I I do think that the band would quote unquote still be together. Um but once Susie and Budgie split um it, it my guess is she and Severin decided they didn't want to find another drummer they were just gonna that that was just it they had their run and then that was it um while Susie and the Banshees were in their heyday uh Morrissey asked Susie to duet with him on a song they did a cover of interlude and the the two of them so she was like the um the post-punk goth queen and he was like the maudlin king of mope rock because the smiths were like super popular at the time and the smiths had broken up and he went solo so he was like who can i duet with that would make such a huge impact on like this alternative music scene and obviously he asked Susie and Susie obviously was the one to go with and she agreed but they famously did not record together he recorded his parts in one studio she recorded her parts in another studio and then because they're such big personalities like they got into some kind of argument or some kind of fight after it was released or something like they were never really friends um and but the song was released the song is called interlude one of my favorite ballads i'm not a ballad person i love bangers i love bops i love to dance you know i don't really love mid-tempo either i like upbeat music ballads i'm not a huge fan of but this is a ballad that i love uh morrissey and Susie interlude um Susie was also asked by basement jacks to sing on one of their songs called kish cash um I mentioned she sang the love song, uh, the song Love Crime from the series finale of Hannibal. Um, you know, a lot of people here in the United States think back to the punk period and they think of like Debbie Harry from Blondie as like the queen of punk. And she might have been the queen of punk here in the US. Blonde, model-esque, you know, tough, great singer, beautiful. Like that's what America thinks about as the female face of punk, which yes, she is and iconic and I love her. Uh, but when I think of the early days of punk, I think of the UK and the Bromley contingent. And for me, it's Susie. So you have this raven haired punk queen in the UK and this blonde, punk queen in the u.s and to be to be alive at that time i mean i was alive at that time but to be in that scene at the time must have been one of the greatest periods of music in modern history in my opinion just like the 
the innovation and the um this the the coolness like the the clothes and the attitude the makeup the music obviously um a lot of times i'm either asked or you know people always ask like if you could ever go back and see one show or if you could ever go back in time you know to to experience you know the music of a particular time where would you go and for me the time period i always think about is late 70s london like late 70s uk punk scene if i could go back in time and i could go back to september uh 1976 for the um for the 100 club punk festival i think that's where i would go i think i would go back to see the sex pistols um and to see the very first performance of susie and the banshees either that or i would go back to that time period and um want to spend a night at the bat club which is a famous um goth club from from that period of time. Like that's where I would go back in time to experience. It's a tough call because there are a lot of, you know, a lot of things to go back to, you know, go back and see like you know, Prince play a club show on his very first tour or um to see Madonna in the Breakfast Club, her first band. Um you know, go back in time and and <laughs> go to a concert where Mozart played, something like that. But if I'm being honest, whenever I, I think about the answer to the question of what time would I go back to, it would be late 70s, punk era, UK, something involving Susie and the Banshees, goth, punk, that time period. Um and speaking of that very first performance, uh, just this week, while doing a bit more research for this episode, I found um, audio. Someone recorded Susie and the Banshees' very first performance back in 1976. I don't know how this happened because, I mean, today, shows are recorded, every single concert's recorded. Whether it's officially released or someone bootlegs it, or records it on their phone and puts it on Instagram, like shows are recorded every single time these days. But back then, the idea of having like some kind of recording device, it would have had to have been like a tape to tape reel or something. Like, I don't know how it was recorded, but someone recorded Susie and the Banshee's entire first performance. And I have uploaded it to my YouTube so, if you would like to hear the very first performance of Susan the Banshees, their 24-minute rendition of the Lord's Prayer, which includes, you know, <laughs> knocking on heaven's door, Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber alles, twist and shout, like that loud. The, the audio is, is not great, but it lends itself, it's so bad it lends itself to the performance that you have to hear it, you have to hear it, so... Go to my YouTube, search for Trent Venegas, and you will see Susan the Banshee's first performance. Give that a listen. I actually thought about uploading that entire performance and posting it at the end of this episode, but it's so long and the audio's not super great. Like, I didn't really want to... I figured if you want to hear it, you can go check it out on my YouTube. Um, and speaking of um, the music I want you to check out... The playlist for this episode has been compiled, has been uploaded to Spotify, um, and it includes uh, songs from the band's entire career, including uh, their studio version of The Lord's Prayer, uh, their uh, singles Happy House, Christine, Arabian Nights, Spellbound, uh, who are among my favorite songs, like songs I listen to probably not daily, but weekly. Um, if I have a chance to put them on any playlist that I'm giving to friends or if I'm putting together a playlist 
um, for like a dance for a party where I have you know want people to like dance or whatever. Those songs definitely go on there. Any running list I've ever I've ever put together when I'm running when I used to run marathons, um, I would put those Susie songs on there because they're upbeat, they're kind of poppy, and they're great. Um, their cover of Dear Prudence is on there. Their cover of The Passenger and the Wheel This Wheel's on Fire is on there. Um, Kiss Them For Me, of course. Um, the song Sick Child from The Rapture is not featured on the soundtrack for The Craft, which is one of my favorite films, but it is featured in the movie during a very integral part of the movie, Sick Child. So that song, very near and dear to me, is on this playlist. The song Forever, also from The Rapture. Um, one of my favorite heartbreak break breakup songs, even though I wasn't really technically going through a breakup, when I mentioned I fell in love with one of my straight friends. Uh yeah, I wasn't out yet at the time, um, but I definitely loved that guy a lot. And because that record, um, because I associate that record, The Rapture, with that period when I was having all those feelings, um, the song Forever is definitely a very special song for me. Um, the gist of it is um, nothing lasts forever. Like it, the, the gist of it is learn this lesson, nothing is forever. Um, even when people say, you know, they'll love you forever, forever is never forever. It really isn't. So, um, yeah, that song cuts pretty deep, uh, and it's very special to me and it is on this playlist. Um, I put a few of the B-sides from their amazing box set Downside Up on this playlist, including the song Il est né le divine enfant which is a French Christmas carol. Yes, Susan the Banshees released a Christmas song as a B-side. And the way they sing it and the way she sings it, the way Susie sings it is very beautiful, very haunting for a Christmas song. Il est né le divine enfant is French for uh, the divine infant is born. You know, Jesus and all of that. So if you're looking for a starkly beautiful gothy Christmas song to put on your Christmas playlists. This is the song for you. Um, and then I also included Face to Face from the Batman Returns soundtrack, New Skin from the Showgirls soundtrack, and the Strings version of Hong Kong Garden from the Marie Antoinette soundtrack. Um, and I put Hong Kong Garden last because... Uh, the non-string version was the very first Susie and the, Banshee, Susie and the Banshees single ever released. So, yeah. That's kind of all I have to say about Susie and the Banshees. It's a lot. Um, I just love this band. I love this band so much. Um, I don't mind that they broke up. I don't mind that they don't make music anymore because... I think they did all they wanted to do on their own terms and I was able to enjoy them as best I could when I finally got a clue. Um, I never got to see, not true, I did see Susan the Banshees once. Um, after Seven years after the release of their final album, they went on the Seven Year Itch tour and I saw them play two shows on that tour. So I did see Susan the Banshees on the very last chance that there ever was to see them live. Um, and then I saw, I've seen the creatures a few times. So I've gotten my fill of Susan the Banshees live. I will forever get my fill of the band's music. And I hope you get your fill of Susie and the Banshees. Um, if you're a fan, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not a fan, check them out. Uh, check out this playlist. Um, check out my YouTube to check out, to watch their first performance ever. Um, or, you know, find them on your own, pick out your own songs and, and give them a listen. So that's what I have for you for this episode of Spooky Electric, all about my love of Susie and the Banshees. You have a great week. I'll catch you next time.
Each episode of Spooky Electric has a playlist that I have created for each individual episode. The playlist can be found on my Spotify account, Trent Venegas, in the playlist folder titled Spooky Electric. The playlist track listings are listed on the Spooky Electric Instagram at Spooky Electric, where the O's are zeros. S-P-0-0-K-Y-E-L-E-C-T-R-I-C.